Hello, this is Robert Barge. Welcome to Redemption's Table, where every week we will gather around this table with a special guest to explore the most appetizing ingredient in this menu called life, redemption. I believe in redemption. I believe everybody hungers for redemption, everybody. And the truth is, redemption is all around us every day. It is a recipe that God the Creator sets before us every single moment of our lives. Unfortunately, so much emphasis is placed upon the bad, many have difficulty seeing, experiencing, and tasting the good. So I'm setting out on a journey, going table to conversation, to accentuate the reality of redemption in the lives of everyday people like you and me. A reality that, I believe, finds its ultimate expression in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the not-so-secret ingredient to the redemption we all seek. So, come hungry, join the meal, because Party of Redemption, your table is now ready. Well, hello once again. Welcome to Redemption's Table. Glad you're with us today. There is a lot to today's table, and let me just encourage you to get ready to put your listening ears on. If you need encouragement, listen to this podcast. If you have experienced loss or sorrow, listen to this podcast. If you have wondered about heaven and what heaven must be like, listen to this podcast. If you have ever been caught up in a political argument or discussion, or maybe you are caught up in politics, listen to this podcast. When God placed this podcast on my heart back in August of 2018, and I began to daydream right there on that very day, who would I invite to even talk to at this table? The very first name that God placed upon my heart is today's podcast guest, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. He's very special to me. And we will learn why in the course of this conversation, but uh, tune into this. The first several moments, um, talk about preaching. Don't miss uh, a great gift here by thinking, oh, this is just for preachers. I encourage you to share it with your pastor, your preacher, but listen to this podcast. I promise you, you will be blessed. So let's get after it. Here we go. Thank you for being here. Well, hello and welcome to Redemption's Table. I have the honor to be sitting here across the table today from Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., Professor of Preaching at Beeson Divinity School. Thank you, Dr. Smith, Smith for being here with us today. What a privilege it is, my brother Robert. I wanted to start by talking about preaching a little bit. I, uh, I have been preaching God's Word since 1980. That was not how I thought God would use me in the ministry primarily, but it I have since discovered. It took me about 10 years to realize that was his spiritual gift through me. But the preaching of God's Word has long been one of my favorite topics of conversation. I have found it to be a great mystery and a great wonder. Am I off the mark in that thought? No, you're definitely the mysterion or the mystery. Um, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides on every storm. That's, that's what William Cooper, as the British calls him, uh, said. That's very true about preaching. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, uh, I know you are, you are a professor of preaching. and. Again, with that being such a great marvel and a great mystery and a wonder, how do you how do you teach 
preaching that which has that divine breath in it, that divine aspect to it? Well, you know, I don't really, I don't teach people to preach. I believe God wants me to be a precursor, a forerunner, one who prepares the way by preparing the climate uh, in which my students will be enveloped and understand, number one, that God has called them to do something that they uh, cannot do in their own strength. Mm -hmm. And therefore, by admitting their own insufficiency uh, and deficiency, then they have to say, as Paul said, our sufficiency is of God. And that's what, I, what, that's what we do here. We, we come here, the climate is set, we study, uh, we, there are two hands involved, their hand and then uh, the hand of God. So we prepare as if everything depends upon us and then we pray as if everything depends upon God so that we are not presumptuous when in essence everything does depend upon him. So we do our work and then we take our little two fish and five biscuits which are not sufficient even for this audience and we watch God multiply so that when preaching is over, there's more left over than what we started with. It's the, it's the mystery of multiplication. When you feed as Jesus did from two fish and five biscuits, 5,000 men not counting women and children. If there's a man for every woman, that's 10,000. If there are two children for each couple, that's 20,000 altogether and you got 12 baskets of fragments left over. Which means then that God has done something that you cannot tabulate and you can't, um, you can't um, choreograph it, you can't demonstrate it. All you can do is say, God did it. Wow. Yeah, that's what, that's what we do. I, so I just have fun. I don't, I don't believe I can teach people to preach because number one, I can't preach. The Lord has enabled me to do what he's called me to do and I can never do it just uh, out of my own strength. I will fail every time, every time. And I know that from experience. Sometimes the messages that God lays upon my heart are based in exegesis. Yes. Other times it seems like it's topical. There have yep. been, been times when it's been allegorical. Yeah. Like God will give me this allegorical story and it just you just weave it together. Yeah. And so that, uh, that, that, that's what I mean for me when I talk about the wonder of it. I never know how God's going to download the message. That's a good way yeah. of putting it. And, uh, how long does it take you for a sermon to go from prompt, Holy Spirit prompt, to the pulpit? In terms of preparation? Yes, sir. 53 years, two months, and six days. Awesome. Okay. And what I mean by that is that every sermon is informed by uh, the 53 years, two months, and six days that I've been in the preaching ministry. Um, it's always, in fact, it's harder now, Brother Robert, for me to prepare sermons because I know more about what is right about preaching than I've ever known before. So um, my failures before may have been more uh, geared to ignorance. I didn't know. Now I know. And because I know, I don't know everything, but I know what I ought to do, it means now that there are rules that I cannot break. Mm -hmm and it's harder, I have to make sure that this is done and that's done. I need to read the text 50 times. I teach my students that. When I say a text, I mean a passage 
a teaching paragraph, which may mean the whole chapter. Just reading it to get that in me, not to memorize it, but to experience it, to visualize it, um, uh, to hear it, uh, to smell the, sm the, the smells that are in the text. For instance, in John 18, 18, uh, Peter is warming his hands in Caiaphas's, the high priest's courtyard, while his heart needs to be warm because his heart has grown cold, and he's warming his hands uh, by a charcoal fire, over a charcoal fire. Mm. And there's a distinct smell to charcoal. Three days later, and this is Resurrection Day, Jesus is walking on the coast of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and Peter is in a boat and recognizes it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And he takes and takes his fish, fish with him and swims to the coast, and there is Jesus, and he is baking fish over a charcoal mm. fire. And uh, Peter has to smell that. And he knew the last time he smelled charcoal fire was three days ago when he was denying the Lord. And I think the charcoal fire calls that which was unconscious and that which he tried to deliberately forget conscious and prepared him for the three questions that he would affirm. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Which led him back to his restoration. Wow. So, I mean, I don't see that just by reading the text superficially and quickly. I see it when I allow myself to get immersed in it and to allow all five of my senses uh, to be informed and to be involved. Wow. Uh, how many messages are you working on at any given time? Well, that's a good question. Uh, right now, probably about five. And the amazing thing is sometimes I'm in a venue and I don't, uh, at, I prepared a message to be preached to that particular congregation. And I could tell because of demographics, uh, which might include age, um, whether a lot of more older people, very few young people, or um, something has happened in that community, violence, and there has been maybe two or three funerals. There have been two or three funerals that week, and I didn't know that, and I come, and I realize, wow, the people are mourning, and uh, there is a sense of the odyssey. Why do bad things happen to God's people? And uh, the Lord will move me away from what I prepared to serve at that congregation, to that congregation, to something else. Mm. And which, what, what that means a lot of times is, it could be something that I had uh, thought about and prepared before, um, or it could be something that's totally different. And after 53 years, two months, and six days, I'm learning more and more to trust a spontaneous, immediate impulse of the Spirit than to insist that I go on and present, and present something that I prepared for the congregation, even though I know uh, that it is not going to directly speak to it. Mm -hmm. I used to do that when I was young because I just basically said, now, Lord, you know, I spent all this time on this. I'm not going to change menus now. If they don't like tacos, too bad. They're going to have that today. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, I, I want to be relevant, but I want my, the relevance of the sermon to be based upon the revelation of the Word. And uh, that's, that has always left me with a sense of satisfaction. And it, and it always works when, when I sense God is speaking that way. If I have to make a turn and a change, I do that 
and it always speaks to the congregation. Always. When you said 53 years, how many months? Two months, six days. Two months, six days. You know, that's my, my response was awesome because immediately, you know, I was thinking in terms of hours. And when you presented that answer, I realized you're talking about a lifetime of that's service. Yeah. I used to, in my early days, I would be very conscientious to not preach the same sermon at a place where I've always been, or already been, and I would keep a record of that. Yeah. And I would even go as far as leave, only tell an illustration one time. Now I'm more prone to, it's almost like it's a, it's a big pot of stew. And whenever I'm, you, you talked about being open to the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like, you know, I, I put the ladle in and a lot of the yes. things that maybe has come out before, yes. it, it comes out again, yes. but with just a different, different yes. setting, different scriptural setting. Yes. So. Yeah, I understand totally. Um, in Doctrine That Dances, you compare preaching to dancing, yeah. and you also compared it to jazz music, which yeah, I yeah, love, yeah, New yeah, Orleans yeah. jazz. Yeah. Um, how would you compare preaching to setting the table, to cooking, to preparing a recipe? This is Redemption's Table, and by the way, we shared together some Chick-fil-A salads, my favorite salad. Mine too. Yeah. So we just enjoyed a salad from Chick-fil-A, but how would you compare it to cooking? I think we ought to be homiletical cooks. My mother was one of the Lord's best cooks of all time. Not the best, but one of his best. She was so familiar with her ingredients that she could, without a cookbook, mix stuff and put her finger in uh, to a batter that she was going to use for a cake. Not sweet enough. Hmm. Needs a little more of this, 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 this. Hmm? because she knew her audience that she was gonna feed. I mean, 60 and 70 people would come over to my mother's house for uh, big days, Resurrection Day, Father's Day, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, uh, Advent, Christmas, that kind of thing. She knew her ingredients and she also knew what the people who came to eat really wanted. So there's nothing for her to have. 10 meats, 18 vegetables, uh, 35 cakes, pies, cobblers. I know I'm making your mouth water. <laughs> yes. But um, she knew, and I think that's what we need to do. We need to know audience. And when it comes to the menu, people like a restaurant, for instance, people don't want, will not eat the menu. That's not what they want, even though the menu, oftentimes what they feature the food items look better than what you get. They're bigger and everything else. Uh, that is the menu. But people don't want the menu. They want what the menu points to. And so people don't, don't need, if you will, a talk about doctrine. Uh, that's fine, that's foundational, that's important. But doctrine ought to point beyond itself to the person of Christ. It points to Christ. For instance, Job. This is the table of redemption. Job says in Job 19, 26 through 29, 27, 20, yeah, 9, 26, 27. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the latter day he shall stand upon the earth. Mm -hmm. And after the skin worms have devoured my body, yet in my flesh shall I see him. I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes will not behold another. 
I know my Redeemer. Not redemption. Mm -hmm. Redemption points to him. You can't have redemption without a Redeemer. Right. So I, I, want, I don't want doctrine, uh, and it will be, if that's all I'm dealing is with, is doctrine in principle, doctrine in concept, doctrine ideationally. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's important. Here's the principle of doctrine. Now let me give you the picture. Mm -hmm. And the picture is a person of Christ and what he's like and what he did to redeem us. So that's what I'm always, I, I say to my students, if you can't picture it, you're not ready to preach it. Mm. Tell me what justification looks like. Mm. You're in a courtroom and you know you're guilty and the judge says, acquitted, not guilty. Oh, why? Because the one who is your advocate, your defense attorney, has stood in your place and has accepted the penalty upon himself that you deserve. Mm. You are acquitted and he is pronounced guilty. Mm. Uh. So it, it, that's what makes me worship when I think about it. I think about how good he is that he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we're healed. Mm. That's what I want to do. I want doctrine to dance and it won't dance if it doesn't point to the person that it's pointing to. Mm. Faith not in faith but faith in the one who I look to. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Right. Wow. You've preached before hundreds, perhaps thousands, but also that there's that element in preaching where God is using you to speak to the one. Yep. And I know that firsthand from your preaching, and I'm not going to digress and go into the entire story, but I was living in Texas at the time. I was at a low point in my life, I had had something happen in my life that had taken me down for almost two years, felt prompted by God's Spirit to leave the mountains of West Texas to go to Georgia to give away a book that I had written. But while I was there, it was at a Georgia Baptist Evangelism Conference, and you spoke that night. You preached, I have the notes here, I didn't take, I didn't take a whole lot of notes, I'll just tell you. But uh, you preached a message, rated R, for redemption, <laughs> and you preached on Rahab the harlot, oh. Hebrews eleven thirty one, and you said a couple of things that night. That you, a moment ago you made reference to the resurrected Jesus meeting Peter there on the beach. That that message was from God to me. What must have been what it must have been like for Peter and Jesus to be there on that beach because God used you the message through you to restore me and to remind me Praise of God. what he had given me, the gift of, 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 of serving him. But you said two things that night. You said, make your mess your message. <laughs> that's become, a, that's become <gasps> a focal point for me these past six years. Wow. And you also said, never put a period where God has placed a comma. But I thought, there's one message right there. That's the power of one message from one messenger to speak into one life. Um, how would you follow up with that? Well, I'm thinking of Phyllis Brooks in his 1878 lectures on preaching. He's an Anglican bishop in Boston who gives perhaps the best known definition for preaching, that preaching is truth mediated or poured through human personality to human personality, that's the idea, 
through the personality of the preacher to the personalities that the preacher uh, is preaching to. So for me, preaching must first come through me. You know, I, need, I, I, need, I need to hear the word speak to me before I think about anyone else. How does this message grab me, grip me? How does it grace me? Huh? It's coming through me first, so there has to be an inward appropriation before there's an outward projection. So I'm thinking about me. Uh, I come to the preaching event, tabula rasa, blank slate. Now text, write on me. That's the first thing. Very painful. Mm. Very, very painful. And then I visualize people in the congregation, whether I've been there or not. I'm asking, you know, how's this going to speak to the senior sister? How's this going to speak to the, the senior man who for the first time in 50 years will sit uh, at his breakfast table uh, in the breakfast nuke and look across to the other chair and find that it's unoccupied. No mm. one's sitting there. Mm. His wife is gone. How will it speak to the teenager? How will it speak to the individual who's just got a bad diagnosis or, or someone who feels like they are fair? I want to go at least give 15 scenarios. Mm -hmm. Will this message speak to them? Mm. And then I will preach it because this is what John Calvin calls the internal witness of the Spirit. That is, after I have read the text, while I am preaching the text, before I ask, before the word is even heard, the Spirit has gone out into the congregation and has prepared people to hear the message that's going to be presented. I don't even know who they are. First time I've gone there. Prepared the heart. Prepared the soil for the seed to be sown. So much so that after the service is over, it is not uncustomary to hear someone as you stand at the back of the door shaking people's hands and thanking them for coming. For them to ask with tears rolling down their cheek, how did you know? How did you know? Yeah. I didn't. But that's what the Spirit does. But the Word comes through the preacher first and then on to the hearer. And between the spoken Word and the receive word, the spirit is working, preparing an individual to hear the word that's being spoken. Wow. Yeah, I, I find that amazing. When you talked about mystery, there's another mystery. Yes, sir. Because you don't know. Yeah. That was, I believe that was in February of 2013. And <sighs> God spoke through you that message. And then about a month later, I happened to be in Birmingham and I contacted your office. And I just said, I'd like to visit with you a few moments. And I shared with you at that particular time. It's been over six years ago. A little bit about my journey. And you, you became a professor that day because you just said, write this down. Just, you know, as I shared. And I think you even took, and I have the piece of paper here. Uh, I think, <laughs> and uh, I think you tore something off the bottom of it. And oh. you, but you told me, you said, write this down. So I've got my pen and I'm ready to write down. Here's what you, here's what you gave me. Uh, it was a quote from Carolyn James, uh, a book she wrote. Yeah. When life and belief collide. collide. When faith is stripped to the bone. Yes, sir. You want to finish that? And all your props and crutches are gone. Your knowledge of God that he is good and is still on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. Huh. And that's a fact. Yeah. Titles are gone. Health is gone. Relationships are gone. Finances are gone. This is gone. This is gone. The things that we lean on, when they're all gone, 
your knowledge of God that he is good and is still on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. Yes, sir. And I believe that with all my heart. Yes, sir. Yeah. Faith and life and beliefs will collide. So when life breaks down, faith breaks through. Mm. That's what happens to you, to me. Yes, sir. We trust him. Yeah. You preached, make your mess your message. Mm -hmm. You gave me that quote, and that became, uh, that quote, I just, it was like a Rubik's Cube. You know, God using those words that uh, Carolyn James had written. And I realized to preach, make your mess your message, and to share such a quote, and you, you know, quoted it verbatim just now, I realized this comes from a heart who understands the broken brokenness in life. Your story of redemption, your story of how God has led you, and, and I have since learned in your own personal story some things I did not know at the time. I, I discovered this morning on the way up here, you, you have written a book that I didn't have, and you graciously provided me a, a copy of it. The Oasis of God from Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, to Morning. But uh, your your story of redemption, you you've know, you know this firsthand. You you know that which you preached that day, and you know this what you just said. You know you believe that statement, and I do too, with all of your heart. That God is good. Yeah, uh, He's still on the throne. Yeah, yeah. You want to share a little bit about your personal journey? Yeah, I was I was redeemed, eternally redeemed, when I was seven years of age. I tell people I've been saved three times, and then of course they think, oh my goodness, he's a heretic. <laughs> so wait a minute. Number one, I was redeemed or saved in eternity past. My name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before time began. So I was no surprise to God when it came to salvation. So I got saved then in eternity past. Second of all, I got saved in redemptive history. When Jesus actually died, God made a motion in eternity that I would be, I would be saved. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, was God's plan A, not plan B. Calvary is not a reaction to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Calvary is a preaction. Christ was slain as a lamb from the very foundation of the world, Revelation 13 and 8, before the earth was even formed, certainly let alone before Adam was, was made. So I got saved in eternity past. I got saved in redemptive history. And I got saved in my own lifetime. That's when I believed the gospel and I acted on it by faith at seven years of age in 1956. I heard the gospel, I came forward as much as I understood it then and as much as I understand it now, I'm still learning about what adoption is and redemption is more and more and more and more. And I acted upon it, repented and believed and God saved me. And so, um, that's what I mean by redemption. Now, I've also had moments of redemption in terms of how God has redeemed my life after great loss. I know what it's like to 
be married 15 and a half years and to have a wife who dies of lupus, a word I'd never heard of before. I know what it's like to lose a, a baby son uh, through a senseless shooting while he worked on a job. It was a, a failed attempt to rob the store, the restaurant where he was working. And um, the robbers didn't get a cent, but one of them out of frustration of not being able, or my son Tony being able to unjam the register or the safe, uh, just shot him in the heart. And at 34, my son made his transition. He's still waiting on me. Uh, I know how what it is for God to redeem me out of that, redeem me uh, from illness, uh, just constantly redeeming my life. Uh, and so when I talk about from morning to morning, I'm saying there's only one difference in the spelling of morning and morning, and it's the, it's the letter U, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And what God wants to do is to condition the U, to take the U out of it so that you can move from morning to morning. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't mean that you don't cry and you don't have struggles and um, you don't experience loneliness, but you can have morning even when there's night. Weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the morning. And in fact, you can even have morning in night. You can have peace in the midst of the storm, not in the absence. And as David would say, God can send out RSVPs for your enemies so that God will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And they watch you get blessed sitting at God's table, the table of redemption. And they cannot do anything to harm you because God has put you under divine protective custody. Mm. So that, that redemption, he's redeemed my life from the pit, as a psalmist would say. Yeah, yeah. Those psalms are often very guttural, very true. Uh, we can find ourselves in Scripture. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Joy is a powerful thing. Uh, about a, six weeks ago, something, I had this thought. Because when I was going through those two years when my wife left me, that 21-month period, and I, I often I would see it was like the waves going out and standing there on a very dry beach, longing, waiting for the wave to come back. And... So I, I've, I've been at that seashore emotionally. And when the wave comes back, when you have that sense of, you know, there's the peace that comes, it's a joyous moment, or, you know, but happy is the wave coming in, sad is the wave going out, but joy is the ocean. Ah, it's I love it. It's right, it's right. Uh, mm. And we often equate the happy and joy yeah. together, but no, no, it's, it's all the same ocean. Exactly right. Uh, Exactly right. Um, what factors did God use to help you keep the faith in the midst of times like that? The loss of a wife, uh, the, you know, both the early home going of a wife and a son. I was under divine interrogation. I, I was directed by the Lord to give my wife's 
eulogy. And uh, of course, you know, there's this feeling, how, how can I do that? I'm the mourner. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk about the mourning when I'm mourning. And the question that I was asked then, and would be asked at a later time with our son Tony, was this. Do you believe what you've been preaching? Do you really believe it? You've been telling other people. We've been being dual for a night and joy comes in the morning. You've been singing by and by when the morning comes. You've been singing, by Lord, what a morning when the sun refused to shine and talking about the morning. Now, do you really believe in what you've been preaching? Yes, Lord, then you, you'll do this. Because your congregation, I was pastored then, your congregation wants to see a pastor take and live out what he's been preaching. Now, if you're gonna cave in and cower and back away from this because it's too much for you, then you're saying, that you either didn't, didn't believe what you've been preaching or that you think that you have made it this far on your own strength. Mm -hmm. So I preached the message from Ezekiel 20, 24 and I dealt with Ezekiel who also lost his wife and uh, the Lord told him and, and the Bible says the very next day he preached. And then when Tony was shot and we found out uh, from our middle son uh, that uh, it was him when he went over to this cafeteria and, and saw the coroner's office putting Tony in the body bag. All that the Lord says uh, to me, you will preach as you will. Hmm. Mm. And I did, because that question once again, do you believe what you've been preaching? And the third time, when my wife and I were in Nairobi, Kenya, this is nine months after Tony was, had been shot, killed. The Lord asked me if I believed in forgiveness. I said, yes. Do you know how to teach forgiveness? Yes. Do you know how to uh, explain forgiveness, exegete forgiveness? Yes. Then you must forgive the one who killed your son. Hmm. And I struggled with that. And that was the question. Do you really believe it? Or is this something that you've just been teaching and preaching and explaining but not living out. And so that started my writing the young man and offering him forgiveness and telling him I loved him. And because um, he told me that I had done for him in terms of just constantly telling him that I loved him, something he had never heard his father say. Mm. So, you know, we continued to write and I continued to um, try to minister to him. All because of the question God asked, do you believe in what you've been teaching and preaching about these things? And that, that challenged me because I don't want to simply uh, say things and preach things, but there is no power in executing and living out those things. Wow. That was the question. Wow. See? Your, your sermons, did you ever after either of those times or all three of those times, pick up a manuscript that you'd written before one of those events happened in your life. Or you pick up a sermon and it's like your message is suddenly speaking to your heart. It's God's message, but God led you to put it together and then there it is in black and white and it's speaking directly to you. Yeah, my first sermon. 
not not after this these events, the loss of my wife and the the loss of my son, uh, not 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 then. And then of course the writing too, my son's murder. But the very first sermon I preached, I was 17 years of age, July the third, 1966, at the Rose Chapel Baptist Church of Cincinnati, Ohio. The text was Luke 4, 18, 19. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and on and on and on. And the title of my sermon was, Lord, I Shall Preach the Gospel. Well, I, I have that manuscript. It was handwritten, like 15 handwritten pages, orderly organized. I'm amazed, number one, without even having um, the the uh, benefit of going to school or anything like that. The way it was organized, I even uh, gave a copy to the dean only because, I mean, we're very dear friends, uh, only because I wanted him as my dear friend to have it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it forced me to look at the sermon and uh, realize that in 50-some years, I really haven't changed. The same kind of interspersing of texts with the canon of scripture, the whole counsel of God, the Bible, um, no, in, the movements of the sermon, the narrative, textual, kind of um, um, narrative, expository, all that kind of thing. Uh, so I looked at that, not so much for the style of the sermon, or the crafting of the sermon, or the construction of the sermon, but to ask myself, have I kept my promise? Because the title was a promissory note. Lord, I shall preach the gospel. That was the title. Mm, wow. So I want, on my 50th then I want to look back and have I tried to be consistent there? Mm. Wow. And I have looked at uh, particularly the, the uh, sermon that I preach when my uh, first wife, uh, Gail Walker Smith, uh, died. After 15 years of marriage, I, I have looked at that manuscript and I looked at the notes and all of that. To, to, and I've listened to it and I've played it uh, before my students. Um, not as some kind of triumphant uh, expose of preaching, not, not at all, but to talk about that when we are weak, that's when we are strong, that God helps us even in our weakness and gives us strength that is not our own. So yeah, I, I've gone back to do that for various reasons. Like I said, the very first one was just to affirm whether or not I had tried to be true to my promise to God. Lord, I shall preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. Not just preach about it, but preach it. And also to look back at the manuscript and just see and experience um, what it must have been like to have written that message as a young, young, young preacher, pastor, parent, and what it was like and um, how God has sustained me through all of those years following um, her death. Wow. These days, I begin my day before the Lord. These days, even more so than in younger days, preaching comes out of the overflow of my time alone with the Lord. Describe your prayer life. My prayer life is a series of running conversations with God. 
Yes, I have those solitaire moments and they're sweet. But um, just as sweet are the moments in which I'm doing nothing but walking from here to my car in the parking lot and praying without even trying to pray. Um, I want it to be that way. I want it to be so natural that uh, I do it without intentionality. Mm -hmm. So they're running conversations. Uh, sometimes uh, I like to use my exercise, the treadmill. No one gets to me. If I'm at the gym, I put my earplugs on. It may not have anything coming through it. I just, I just don't want to be disturbed. Yeah. So people think that, you know, same thing on the plane. Sometimes that, that's the way it is. Uh, but at home, the treadmill, and I just, it's just a matter of prayer so that I'm praying, but I'm also uh, exercising my body, uh, but I'm also exercising my mind because sometimes I'm reading on it. So that, I get three things done. Meditation in terms of prayer, and then a contemplation in terms of reading, and then it, physical exercise in terms of working out on it. So it becomes a trip, a wonderful, wonderful, Time for 45 to, well, at about an hour. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good multitasking. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Ask this question. What are you looking forward to with Jesus? I just finished John Eldridge's book, Beautiful Outlaw, and he raises that question. <laughs> and I thought, that's a wonderful question. I've never thought about that. What are you most looking forward to with Jesus when you're with him? It's... Um, the most beautiful text of scripture in the Bible to me is Revelation 22 and four. They shall see his face. Panim apanim, Hebrew, face to face. Kind of like a return to paradise lost, John Milton, where Adam and the Lord walked in a garden in the cool of the evening just sweet fellowship. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I kind of think that's one of the reasons why uh, the Lord just uh, gives us very few known realities about heaven. For instance, people who have gone there don't give a report. Mm. Enoch walks with God and he walks to heaven. He walked with God and he was not because God took him. That's what Genesis 5.24 said. We haven't heard from him. <laughs> Elijah outflew death and went to heaven. And next time we see him is 800 years later on the Mount of the Transfiguration, standing on one side of Jesus. Of course, Moses has died. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And they're talking to Jesus in Luke 9.31 about one thing. The deceased, the word deceased there in Greek is exodon, the exodus, the death that Jesus would die at Jerusalem. But in terms of that, we don't think anything about heaven. I mean, he didn't even talk about heaven. He's just talking about that uh, right now, heaven is waiting for the most significant event earth has ever known the crucifixion. But in terms of heaven, Elijah doesn't tell us anything about that. He doesn't tell us how, how long it took for him to get in the 
fiery chariot and to go beyond the ionosphere and the stratosphere and to uh, break the gravitational pull, pull of, of the earth, of space, and then to land in the third heaven without an asbestos suit, without oxygen. Nothing like that. Doesn't tell us about the golden street. Nothing, nothing like that. And then Paul goes to the third heaven and he says that uh, whether it was in the body or the spirit, he's talking third person, it's really him. He says that this man, referring to himself, was given a gag order. He didn't <laughs> use that word, but he says he was not allowed to talk about what he saw. Mm. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall I know even as also I am known. Well, what, what does that mean, Paul? Can't tell. Mm. So, the song, we, we sing it in church sometimes. I can only imagine. Yeah. So that's all you can do is just imagine. Will I, will I, be, will I dance with you, Jesus? And this is what gets me. Or will I be able to speak at all? Hmm. You see that, I remember that day I'd seen my, my wife, uh, Gail. Um, you know, we had courted and dated and everything else. But man, when she had that wedding dress on and that veil over her face and came marching up the aisle, tear. Wow. I'd seen it, but it was something. And when that veil was lifted, mm. I think right now, the, when it comes to Jesus, there's a veil. It's not necessarily opaque, but it's certainly not transparent. It may be translucent. Mm -hmm. We see through a glass darkly. Mm -hmm. So I think the mystery is there. And I think that's why heaven would never be a boring place because he'll continue like an onion to peel off layer and layer. Because yeah. we can't take it. It's too much. Yeah. We're not celestial conditioned down here. That's why Peter, James, and John couldn't handle it. They own the Mount of Transfiguration. They, they fainted. Mm. But Elijah and Moses, who'd been celestial conditioned and been in paradise, they could talk to Jesus. Wow. Yeah. I know preaching that uh, gift of God through you, that certainly must feed your heart. When you're not preparing a message or in a pulpit, uh, when you're not ministering, when you're just you and God alone or you and family alone, what, what are the things in, of God's creation or the things that God, the gifts, many good and perfect gifts He brings into our lives? What are those things that feed the heart of Robert E. Smith, Jr.? Well, see, there's never a time for me, Brother Robert, that I'm not preparing. If I go to a baseball game, I'm not trying to prepare, but something happens. And I think that's preaching. If I'm on an airplane and I'm in a holding pattern, I see where we need to land, but the plane keeps circling, holding pattern, because the air traffic controllers have not given the pilot permission to land because there's too much congestion. And we have to wait until we get orders from the tower. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's how life is, that's how ministry is. I know where I need to go, 
but I haven't gotten permission from the tower. Mm -hmm. And when the, the uh, permission comes from the tower, then I land where he wants me to. But now I have to accept suspension and delay. And I tell people that God's delays are not God's denials. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to wait yeah. until you get word from the tower. Well, I'm just on an airplane, but my mind is always open. And before I know it, what is an observation becomes a revelation to me. I can't help it just yeah. in me. Yeah. But I do like things like, um, well, we have a great-grandchild now who's almost 10 months of age. Her name is Amora. I love her. That's my girl. I do love playing ping pong. I enjoy really? that. Oh, man. I like going to botanical gardens. I don't have a green thumb. I love seeing flowers. I love just taking walks. I love going to the shopping centers, not to buy anything at all, not gonna buy anything. And just walk around and just hear the noise. Wow. Take a book, sit down and just read a, little, uh, a book that doesn't require um, a lot of concentration. Uh, something that's a, a fun book. Uh, and just, and then what happens invariably is that I run into people that I haven't seen for years, which is wonderful, or kids that I used to pastor at 12 and now they're married and they have children and I haven't seen them for 25 years. Mm. That kind of thing. Because I believe that was on God's calendar mm -hmm. for that to happen that yeah. day. Yeah. I mean, those are the kind of things. I mean, I really, I love to, my wife and I travel a, a lot and we love to see um, just God's, the heavens declare the glory of God. So the Grand Canyon's here and all yeah. oh, that. I mean, it just, I think it takes, a, it's easier, I think, to be a, an apologist, a Christian, than it is to be an atheist because yeah. you have to argue against so much evidence. Yeah. You have to try to deny so much. It's just easier to believe. That's all. Yeah. You preach in a lot of different places. You've been preaching for years. And, and at this season where you are right now in our country, in so many churches, because you see a lot of churches, is there a message right now that you sense, you perceive is most needed in our churches? Is there a message that is most needed in our culture, mm -hmm. in our society? And what would that message be? Well, you know, you mentioned about uh, Carolyn James's mm -hmm. book, uh, When Life and Belief Collide. When faith is stripped to the bone and all our props and crutches are gone, a knowledge of God that He is good, here's the key, and is still on the throne, still on the throne, is the only thing that will keep us going. I like to remove the word still. I just say, our knowledge of God that he is good and that he's on the throne. You don't need the word still. I mean, he's, where else is he going to be? Mm -hmm. He's not going to abdicate his throne. He's not going to come, come off of his throne. Uh, he's not going to um, step away from his throne and someone else will replace him. There's a, a great word in Exodus 15, 18. It's a Hebrew word, melech. It says... Uh, the Lord reigneth, Malek reigneth. 
And what that means is that God succeeds himself. That's really what it means. Hmm. God reigns why? because God continues to succeed himself. He cannot be nominated. He cannot be elected. He cannot be impeached. You can't vote on him. He's just sovereign. He sits on the throne. So what I say to the church, I don't say this to Republicans or Democrats or independents. I say it to the church. Remember, this is our Father's world. Not just this nation. This is our Father's world. Don't allow your patriotism to transcend your Christianity. Yeah. You're not a Republican Christian or a Democratic Christian or an independent Christian. You are a Christian Republican. You're a Christian Democrat. You're a Christian Independent. So that your Christianity Mm -hmm. or to shape and inform your political stance yes. and not the other way around. I run into people, they, they want to know, well, what's the Bible got to do with this? Mm -hmm. What do you mean what the Bible got to do with this? Well, this is political. Let's not get religious. Wait, wait, wait. Let God, no, let God be God. Make sure that you understand, and this has to do with any administration. It had nothing to do with uh, this president's uh, administration or the Obama administration or the Bush administration or the Clinton administration or the Lincoln administration or the Washington administration or the F. No, 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 no. I say to them, there is a hill higher than Capitol Hill. I say to them that the Bible must transcend the Bill of Rights, because the Bill of Rights can be amended. The Bible doesn't need to be trusted, uh, adjusted, it must be trusted. And I say to them, make sure that the issue for you is not whether or not you kneel or stand uh, when the Pledge of Allegiance is announced to the flag. Make sure you kneel when it comes to the cross. I say to them that God is greater than governments. I mean, I, I want them to, I want the church to, I mean, we're gonna, you're going to always have Jews and Gentiles. That's what Paul was dealing with there. And you don't, uh, Gentile, you don't need to become a Jew in order to be accepted by God. Yeah. You're Gentile, circumcised in heart. Like a Jew is not necessarily, is not God's child because of the circumcision of male genitalia. It's a circumcision of the heart. Mm -hmm. So you're one. Why is it that Republican and Democrat and Independent can't be in the same body and there can be unity in the midst of diversity and the agenda is God ultimately and not government? So let God. It's, it's, what would God say about this? Now, I know that's foreign in many cases. They want to say, let's keep the Bible. Well, if you're a Christian, you can't keep the Bible out. I can't. So that's, that's my message. It's not always except uh, people will give you the proverbial nod. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then we start, uh, stop speaking because I'm a... I'm this and then you're that, yet we can't shake hands and love each other because we belong to different political parties. And we are allowing politics, if you will, to be triumphant 
over our Christianity. I think it's great being patriotic, but hear me when I tell you, my Christianity must transcend my patriotism, yeah. must. Yeah. Otherwise, then we have, if you will, made Christianity inferior and made it negotiable. You yes. can't do that. Yeah. I see that a lot in social media. Oh. Where uh, that, that takes the forefront. Uh, it, it's either political or, or other things. Right. Uh, an agenda takes the, the forefront instead of the kingdom and mm. the gospel. Taking the That's forefront. the word, kingdom. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Thank you for your time. Wasn't that a fantastic conversation? I trust it blessed you as much as it did me. When we record, we have an hour limitation on our recording device, and I was not aware, it's only the second time this has happened, but we exceeded that hour. Interestingly enough, right there at that particular moment when it ended, that was the end of the conversation. Afterwards, I just thanked Dr. Smith for coming, and I want to do that now. Thank my brother for being there, a part of this table. And I want to encourage you to do something. As I said in the beginning, this podcast was not just for a pastor or someone who preaches, but if you know someone like that, I want to encourage you to forward this podcast to that individual. This is October. October is Pastor Appreciation Month. This is one way you can appreciate your pastor because I can tell you those who have been called to preach love to talk about the joy and the wonder of preaching. And then this will be an encouragement to them. So I want to encourage you to do that. Thank you for listening. Be right back here next Monday morning. You will hear the words or see the words. Party of Redemption, your table is now available. And you have a great rest of your week wherever you are. Until next time, thank you.